Buddha's teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path is, as I have acknowledged before, essentially three trainings. A training in morality, which purifies our speech and behavior, leading to the happiness of living in a harmonious community. The second training is a training in concentration, which is a purifying of the mind, leading to the happiness of tranquility and seclusion. And the third training is a training in the development of wisdom, whereby we purify our views and our understanding, leading to the happiness of peace. Here, on this retreat, living according to the precepts is, of course, fulfilling the first training of morality. Developing some continuity in our mindfulness and overcoming the hindrances for short periods of time is the development of concentration, which leads to the calming, stilling of the mind. And the development of insight, or the noticing of the arising and passing away of the multitude of phenomena that occurs, is the development of knowledge or wisdom. Wisdom, in the Buddha's understanding, can arise three different ways. We can, if we apply our mind, logic, through the use of logic, reasoning, deductive reasoning, speculation, we can construct or derive or gather or gain some knowledge through the use of thought. A second way that we can gain knowledge or understanding is through listening to, reading about others, listening from others, and generally gathering or acquiring the knowledge that others have expressed or discovered. And the third way in which we can acquire knowledge of wisdom is through mental development. And the Buddha included in mental development both the development of deep concentration and the development of insight. Here, we're primarily concerned with the development of insight, not through thinking, logic, reasoning, and not through acquiring others' knowledge through books or talks, but primarily through the development of the mind, through steadying the mind, focusing the mind, concentrating the mind, and discovering for ourselves insight, insightful knowledge, insightful understanding. In this process of developing the mind, 
which we've undertaken here, we sharpen our mindful awareness using the breath, sounds, sensations in the body. We heighten our perception and recognition of what is going on by that careful attention and the use of labeling. And we minimize the distractions, we minimize the uh, arenas of agitation and disturbance in the mind by just following a schedule and silence and just the continuity throughout the waking hours of careful attention. Vipassana means to see clearly, to see the inner characteristic of experience or to see the underlying truth of experience. And as I have mentioned before, we we do that by paying attention to the four foundations of mindfulness, the body and the mind, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, and the, the various things that appear in the mind, the hindrances and the subtle mental states, variety of thoughts. And a large part of practice is cataloging the vast array of experiences that we discover. A lot of different physical experiences, a lot of different mental experiences, and we just keep noticing them and recognizing them and recognizing them more quickly and uh, just discovering new ways of understanding what is going on in this body and mind. But over the course of days, we begin to get familiar with the physical experiences and the mental experiences. And a significant shift occurs in practice when the familiarity of what is appearing allows us to notice not only what is appearing, but the process that's happening. And here is where we actually begin to develop vipassana, or spiritual insight. When we begin to see the universal characteristics of all experience. And these universal characteristics are, in Pali language, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness and the impersonality of all everything that we experience. So tonight I want to speak about these three characteristics, universal characteristics of all experience, because we get a lot of glimpses of these universal truths, and some we recognize and some we don't. But the practice of insight or the process of deepening insight is really just a deepening realization of these three truths 
in every aspect of our life. So the first characteristic of all experience is that it is impermanent, anicca, impermanent. When we reflect on our condition or conditions in the world, it's obvious that everything is changing. Seasons change, economies change, governments change, we grow old and change, we... Change is ubiquitous. So it's really no secret. It's not some hidden spiritual knowledge. Yet we live our life as if we could somehow stop the fact of change. We try to, and sometimes we struggle to, achieve stability in our relationships. We struggle to maintain a kind of uh, a steadiness in our health. We try to maintain uh, the institutions and organizations of our life in a form that works once we found what works. And we love predictability. We love stability. We'll do anything we can to make our day predictable. We like to pin down commitments and appointments. And we have all learned ways of trying to stabilize our life, trying to kind of um, hold things in what works for us, a pattern that works for us. But we are always in transition. Always in transition. Life keeps changing on us. The rules keep changing. Situations keep changing. We keep changing. And we have to keep adapting. Behind it all, and maybe the source of our anxiety about the change and the inevitability of change and the unpredictability of change that we have to live with is the change that we all have yet to experience when we leave this life. And it's a change that looms in front of us whether we choose to see it or not. Nothing can prevent it. We can't avoid it. And much of our life is a busyness in an attempt to deny it or postpone it. The Buddha said, more than living a life of morality or a life of devotion or a life of generosity or a life of loving kindness, more than all of this, is a single moment of seeing the truth of impermanence. Seeing the truth of impermanence 
is that valuable or that significant as a tool for living this life. Obviously, the Buddha is not talking about uh, uh, just thinking, oh, everything changes, because we've all done that. But he's talking about insight knowledge, seeing, feeling, experiencing deeply the fleeting nature of everything about us. Seeing the physical sensations dissolve on the spot of their appearance. Seeing the, uh, the, the ephemeral and fleeting nature of thoughts that can't be grabbed a hold of. Seeing the ever-changing emotional flavor of our mind. When we open to the fact of change, we open to the fact that not only do all of our experiences change, not only does everything around us change, but our practice changes, our sense of ourself changes, everything changes. One yogi put it this way, sometimes I'm a good yogi, sometimes I'm a bad yogi, sometimes I'm a yo-yogi. <laughs> but to see this ever-present change is sometimes very unsettling, very destabilizing. And we are left with the feeling that life is getting ahead of us. And we're having a hard time keeping up. Seeing deeply into this ever-changing nature of conditions, body, mind, and everything around us, we don't know what to expect next. When we resist seeing the truth of impermanence, we struggle to keep it all together. And it is a constant struggle to try to keep things from changing. One way that we do that is to hold on to the idea of becoming or being or something else becoming or being perfect. Perfection is not possible. Ever. Ajahn Chah, when he came to England, a friend of mine is a really quite an extraordinary painter, uh, artist, lives in England, and he's a devotee of, of Ajahn Chah, and he had painted a huge life-size picture of Ajahn Chah to be placed in the entryway of the uh, monastery in England. And when Ajahn Chah came to that monastery for the first time many, many years ago, the artist was there. He wanted to see Ajahn Chah's reaction to this uh, painting. So he stood where he could see him, and Ajahn Chah came through the door, and he looked up at that painting, and it was exquisite. It was extraordinary. It was just like it was real. And Ajahn Chah looked at that and said, perfectionists really suffer. <laughs> When we open to change, we 
learn to let go. We learn to let things be in their changeability. And this requires grieving the loss of everything we've ever known. Because everything we have ever experienced, everything we've ever known, everything we've ever done, or been, or said, or seen, or tasted, or smelt, has gone. We have lost it. We need to learn to feel that loss without falling into the oh poor meism of self-pity, without getting caught in a perpetual grieving process of, oh, poor me, that my youth is gone, my whatever is gone. But to see and to feel that loss, that emptiness that comes with every passing. And to remain in this present moment with a clear experience, an ability to be with that loss when it's present and to let it go when it's gone. A friend of mine who's a psychiatrist at Harvard, Jack Engler, did his doctoral thesis on this practice and people who've done well in this practice. And his understanding of practice is that practice is one long grieving process. Because what comes into view in our practice as we sit here? Everything we've ever done or thought or had or wanted or been. And it's no longer here. It's just a memory. And so, as we see that, if we are going to learn to be in the present moment, we have to learn to let go of the past. Grieve the loss and come into the present. The practice of letting go is a constant dying process. Dying to everything that occurs moment to moment. And in some ways, practice is just a rehearsal for the ultimate letting go that has to occur when we leave this life. We will have to let go of everything. Material, our body, the future, thoughts, feelings, everything. What you find yourself hanging on to today, you'll be hanging on to when you die. At a deeper level of insight practice, not only do we see the fleeting nature of everything that we come to know, every appearance in the mind, every experience fleeting, passing away fleetingly, but we also come to see the impermanence, the transitoriness, the passing away of the knower, him or herself the one who is mindful. And this is an extraordinarily difficult place in practice because 
every moment is dissolving away from us and can't and nothing is carried over to the next moment and so the mindfulness of this moment doesn't recognize the mindfulness of the last moment and it's every moment is a new struggle to be mindful every moment with no sense of continuity from one moment to the next it is a slippery slope of everything dissolving nothing can be maintained from one second to the next but this is deep this is deep insight this is deep insight into impermanence and initially it can be very unsettling very destabilizing and it's what we call uh, the stage of rolling up the mat because when you get to the stage all you want to do is roll up the mat and go home and you will unless you have a teacher who can guide you through it can encourage you to stay with it keep noting and you will get through it when our sense of self is seen to be changing every moment everything is very unstable but when we can let go of constructing a sense of self we can settle back into this moment and let the moment just unfold moment after moment after moment without creating a me that gets constructed and dies every moment this is where the nature of insight into impermanence has taken us where we don't construct a sense of ourselves in every moment that has to inevitably die when conditions change the second characteristic of all experience the universal characteristic the universal truth is the truth of dukkha when the buddha began his teaching after his own awakening to the truth realization of the truth he started by teaching the truth of dukkha in the four noble truths when we look around the world today and we don't have to look far we can just look at the, the neighboring pets but when we look any further than that we see an unimaginable amount of suffering it's just the just uh, on a human level it is extraordinary how much in the variety of ways that humans suffer whether it's through war or hunger or political repression domestic violence parental abuse disease slavery which still exists in the world deprivation humiliation shame fear paranoia frustration religious persecution it is extraordinary we are unbelievably fortunate to live in the conditions that we do and yet we too suffer 
reflecting on these conditions of suffering in the world can be sobering. And it can move us to align our lives with less suffering or being the cause of less suffering and through compassion and sensitive caring for ourselves and others to to minimize the suffering in some small sphere of influence. And this is important to do. But for many of us, it is difficult to open to this amount of suffering. Sometimes when we get a glimpse of how much suffering there is, we react out of fear. And we feel overwhelmed, or we feel overwhelmed. And we withdraw from noticing. Or we just become angry and blame others, disturbing our own tranquility in the process. Or we feel impotent. What can I do about that? Feeling disempowered. In many ways, we try to minimize our contact with suffering. Yet, it's all around us, everywhere we look. And it's difficult to open to it, in part because it reveals or it reflects our own suffering, which is also so difficult to acknowledge. When we live our lives as if to avoid or deny our own or others' pain, we struggle. And that struggle itself is suffering. Emily Dickinson has written, There is a pain so utter it swallows substance up and covers it with trance as if in a dream. And for many of us, we choose to live in the dream, in a trance, sleepwalking through life, not noticing, not able to acknowledge our own or other suffering. Again, I have to thank my Dharma teachers for bringing dukkha, or suffering, out of the closet and saying, look here, do you see this? in your own life, in the lives of others. And it's a hard thing to, to do, to stand in front of the mirror and see your own suffering. But it's essential before we, if we are to really look for the way to be free of suffering. There's the obvious physical and mental pain aches and pains in the body, frustration, disappointment, anger, fear, shame, self-pity, angst in the mind. And this is very obvious to yogis, those who actually sit and look at their own condition. But it's not so obvious to those who don't pay attention. We can look uh, in our culture and see the um, tremendous amounts of narcotics and alcohol and pain relief medicines and activities that are designed to 
cover it up. There is the pain or the dukkha or the unsatisfactoriness that comes because life is ever-changing. And even if conditions now are pleasant, we're healthy, we have a job, we have some money, we're living in a good place, in the back of our mind we know that it could always change at any moment. And that in itself, the fact of change, undermines any stability, satisfaction that we might derive from the pleasant present circumstances. This constant vulnerability leaves us unstable, unsatisfied, And there's no way to find a security in the face of change. Practice reveals the inability to find or to establish that security, that stability, that fulfillment. What experience have you had on this retreat? What good experience have you had that has continued to provide you with, you know, happiness, satisfaction? A good meal is soon gone. A good sitting is gone as soon as the bell rings. What experience is going to do that? Nisargadatta Maharaj was a wise man in India, died a few years ago, and he was asked about pain. He was asked about physical, physical pain, but what he says is really appropriate to any kind of pain. He says, the bliss comes from full awareness of pain, in not shrinking or in any way turning away from it. All happiness comes from awareness. The more we are conscious, the deeper the joy. Acceptance of pain, non-resistance, courage and endurance, these open deep and perennial sources of real happiness or true bliss. The wholehearted acceptance of pain releases the springs of happiness. When pain is accepted for what it is, a lesson and a warning, and deeply looked into and heeded, the separation between pain and pleasure breaks down and both become experience. Experience, painful when resisted, joyful when accepted. There's the obvious pain of dukkha dukkha, the pain of change, viparinama dukkha, there's sankara dukkha, or the oppressive nature of just having to take care of this body. Not being able to get out from under the responsibility, the full-time responsibility of 
feeding, bathing, grooming, adjusting, fixing, trying to keep the body comfortable. And when we open to the truth of that, Sankara Dukkha, you begin to get a sense that it's not due to my personal inadequacy or any personal fault of mine that I experience the uh, unsatisfactory nature of this body in any way. This is opening to the truth of dukkha, the universal truth of dukkha. And in practice, we often struggle against opening to this truth. Great resistance to seeing dukkha, to feeling the pain of the body, to feeling the pain in the mind, the heart. Because when we open to dukkha, when we open to this is the way it is, not only is the experience of the moment unsatisfying, unpleasant, difficult to be with, unfulfilling, but our sense of ourself along with it is unsatisfactory, burdensome, vulnerable, unfulfilled. And that's what's hard to bear. When we see deeply into the truth of dukkha, when we see that what we have tried to establish in our life to provide security, satisfaction, fulfillment, can't do it, then we begin to pull back from all of our fantasies, pull back from all of our imagined futures and live in the present moment more peacefully, more tranquilly, with more awareness and ability to just be here with conditions as they are. And in that, we learn to let go. We learn to let things be. Let them unfold and live in harmony with them. Impermanence, dukkha. The third universal characteristic is what is called anatta, translated often as selflessness, egolessness, or non-selfness, which are frightening, misleading, and and not very accurate uh, translations of what anatta really means. What anatta really means is maybe collectively or, or conveyed through the collective meanings of no separate self or insubstantial self or a conditioned self or that that things don't have an essence in and of themselves but that they have an essence only because of the conditions that make them appear. And a third experience or another experience of anatta is when we 
feel and see and acknowledge deeply just how out of control our mind and body really is. Because if, if we see deeply that the mind and body is out of our control, then we know there's nobody home. And this is the Buddha's unique realization of the truth. It is a profound and yet a very subtle realization, but it's the key to freedom. How can we begin to see the truth of anatta in our experience here these days? How can we recognize the profundity of it? How can we notice the subtlety of it? Most of us have a very strong identification with who we think we are. We feel like we are someone, relatively. And due to the continual feedback from others, it gets reinforced over and over again. We rely on our identity, the fixedness of our identity. I am today who I was yesterday, and I will be tomorrow who I am today. We, come, we, we need to rely on that. In the everyday give and take of life, we need that. That fixed sense of self has been conditioned since we were born. In my case, you know, I was born, my mom picked me up and she said, Oh, Stevie, you nice little boy, you're my nice son, I love you so much, you're so cute. You know, and she did that for, for four or five or six years. And my father picked me up once or twice and he said the same thing. <laughs> and then my brothers and sisters, they started saying, Oh, yeah. That's you. That's your toy. That's me. This is my toy, you know, and you really get clear who you are real quick. And you go to school and Steve sits in that chair and Bob sits in that chair and Sally sits in that chair. And okay, and then the government gives you a number and says, this is your number. That's who you are. And the bank gives you a number and suddenly, you know, when you reach middle age, you know pretty much who you are. You have a pretty solid sense of yourself. It's pretty fixed. It's, pretty, uh, it's a pretty tenacious thing. And even though I have gone, and you have gone, and all beings go through innumerable changes from day one to age, whatever we are now, through childhood and adolescence and early adult and middle adult and late adult and, and on and on in different roles and relationships and all that, we still have our same identity. The identification remains even while all the roles and relationships change. But we still feel, this is me. There seems to be a continuity to this being who is having all these experiences. Someone to whom life is happening. In fact, 
we need a sense of self. We can't get by in, in life without it. And our society rewards those who have a very strong uh, identification with their beliefs, such as politicians, with their actions, look at military leaders, or with their bodies, look at the, the models, or with something else, look at Hollywood. You just, if you have a strong enough identification with some piece of yourself, some part of yourself, or some behavior, then this society will reward you unbelievably. But if you have a weak sense of self, if you can't hold it together, a sense of self, you are brutalized. And so we need to have a sense of self. The problem comes when we get identified with it. When we get so identified with it that we can't let go of it when conditions change. In practice here, we begin to experience the insubstantiality of this self in a number of ways. One way that we begin to see through this identity is we just take it apart, piece by piece. And so we, we, we begin to see on a moment-to-moment basis what this thing called Steve is. It's a sensation of hardness, it's a thought, it's an intention, it's a fear, it's a memory, it's a plan. The tapestry of life gets you know, pulled apart thread by thread. And then we lay it all out in front of us and we say, which one of those threads is me? You know, which thought did you have today that is you? Which sensation in the body is really you? Which plan that came through the mind today is really you? Which taste that you had today and enjoyed is really you? It's ludicrous. I mean, we, we can see no such thing. And yet somehow we take and we put all these pieces together, claw them all together, glue them all together with a lot of attachment and identification, and we say, that's me. Yeah, but in practice, when we take it apart, we begin to see that our, everything that appears in our experience is an impersonal, out-of-our-control thing. There is no solid self to get identified with. A second way that we begin to see the ephemeral nature of this self that we hold so dear is that we notice that everything is out of control. We can't control it. This out-of-controlness reveals a lack of an inner directing self. Can we control our bodily experience? We can shift our posture. We can say, I'm going to shift my posture. Sure, we can do that. But can we say, body, be comfortable. No pain this city. We can say it. But does it happen? No. 
So we say, okay, mind, I want you to remain calm and tranquil. <laughs> I don't want any aversion this sitting. I don't want to get irritated about anything. Okay. So I say, yeah. Does it happen? Not usually. So, if we can't control our mind and body, who is? Who, I mean, you know, we say, well, I can't do it. Maybe you can't. (laughs) Somehow we think that other people are controlling their thoughts or their emotions or their feelings or their plans. It's not happening that way. Just pay, I mean, you don't have to believe me. Just look at your own experience, and you can see that it's happened in that way. It's out of control. Another way that we begin to see the essencelessness of this process that we are is to notice the ephemeral nature of experience. Many of you really getting in there, and it's really, it is a joy for us to see when you really get in there and you start noticing the subtlety of what's happening in the body. You know, and, and you say, oh, yeah, there's, there's something happening there in the knee. And you go to look at what's going on in the knee, and when you get there, what was happening isn't there. So you say, oh, no, it's in my back now. And you go to look at what's going on in the back, and it's not there. You, it's, it's like you try to, you, you run around the body trying to find something, and there's nothing that you can really experience. It's so insubstantial. Or you, you, you begin to notice how insubstantial thoughts are. You know, a thought comes by, and if you don't notice it, it creates this little bubble around you, and you live inside of this world created by this thought. You know, and there's something going on there, there's a behavior, there's an activity, it's you in relationship to other people and things, you know, and then something happens, somebody pricks that bubble, boom! You see, you went back here. What, what, what is so substantial about that thought? Nothing. There is nothing to it. It is just a... When we see how ephemeral and how insubstantial all of our physical and mental experience is, we really get a glimpse of how... how little essence there really is in this process. Stable, enduring, solid essence. Not there. When we can begin to notice this level of the ephemeral nature of the body and the mind, it can it can be scary. It can be like uh, we we can start wondering what is happening. What's what's going to become of me? But we actually are getting a taste of freedom. We're getting a taste of the expansive nature of freedom. We're also getting a taste of the responsibility required in remaining free. But nevertheless, when we get a taste of just how free the mind can actually be when we let go of our identifications, that taste is exquisite. And that's what we keep coming back for. 
as difficult as it is, as painful as it might be to see, and as shaky as it might make us feel, we get addicted to this taste of freedom. The stepping outside of the bounds, the boundaries, the container of who we have always imagined ourselves to be. A fourth way that we begin to glimpse the essencelessness, the, the, the anatta characteristic of what's going on here, is through conditionality. Now, in this situation here, those who sit facing that wall, that's the condition of Kamala and I, they're called teachers. And those who sit facing this wall, that's the condition of their experience, they're called yogis. Now, I could get attached to my identification as a teacher. And sometimes I do. So, I think, well, I lead retreats, and I go here, and I go there, so I'm a teacher. But when I go home, and I'm with Kamala, whether I'm a teacher or not has got nothing to do with how we get along. But if I'm attached and identified with being a teacher and try to teach her, trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Or being a teacher and, and going around and doing these things. When I went to the meditation center in Massachusetts to, to do my own retreat this uh, last uh, May, when it came time to sign up for doing the yogi jobs that had to be done to keep the place running, I wanted to kind of stay identified with my role as a teacher and say, ah, special privilege, teacher privilege, don't have to do a yogi job. As long as I remained identified with being a teacher, suffering, because I had to do a job. But let go of those conditions, let go of that identification, live in the conditions as they're unfolding in this moment without any identification, freedom. Less suffering, less less unhappiness. years ago when I was practicing in Burma, I was in a monastery or in a meditation center where we practiced this kind of meditation, silent, sitting and walking, 20 hours a day, endlessly. And I was there for about four years. And somewhere in the middle of it, one of the Burmese monks that was about my age, who could speak some English, I was talking to him one day. And he said to me, he says, uh, did you ever really practice without speaking? <laughs> and of course, we all think we're here practicing without speaking, you know. We've taken this uh, agreed to noble silence. And I said, well, not really. It seems like every day I have some excuse to speak. You know, I speak to somebody about the mail I got from home or, you know, hi, how are you doing? And, you know. And he said, you ought to try it sometime. He says, I've practiced that. He says, it's really powerful. So I said, oh. Okay, well, right on the spot, I said, all right, for the next three days, I'm not going to speak. <laughs> I was modest, three days, I'll try. And I made a determination not to speak. Well, something came up 
all three days had to speak. <laughs> you know, somebody came to see me and, you know, whatever, had to speak. But I did get a glimpse of, like, oh, not speaking and really making a determination not to speak. That, it does something to your practice, really intensifies it. So I said, all right, for the next four days, I'm not going to speak. I just said that, to, I made that determination to myself. Well, I don't remember what happened, whether I spoke or not. I forgot all about it. But sometime later, Joseph and Sharon and other friends of mine from the States came to Burma to that meditation center. And when they came, oh, I got really excited. And so I went up to see him and I started talking and jabbering away and how's it going and what's going on in the States and na 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 na. And the next day, one of the, the Western monks who'd been there at the monastery with me, he said, Oh, I see you're speaking again. And I said, yeah, why, what's, what's, I mean, Joseph and Sharon came and just said hello to him. He says, he says, you know, you haven't been speaking for six weeks. I said, really? I didn't even notice it. But as I look back at that time on what was going on in my practice, it was extraordinary. One time, towards the end of that six weeks, I went to, I had this feeling I was walking around, I, I kept having this feeling of being naked. And, you know, monks wear robes and they're all covered up. And, and I'd be walking, you know, down, you know, from one building to the next or going to the dining room or something. And I'd get this really strong feeling, it's like I don't have any clothes on. <laughs> and I'd have to look at myself to make sure I had my robes. I could, I was so feeling so transparent or so, um, I don't know, it just didn't have any, uh, solid sense of myself. I just felt like I was naked to the world. My sense of self was really, really thin, really dissolved, very uh, unsolidified. Everything was really light and wispy and ephemeral. I went to my teacher at that time and I was telling him what my experience was, how light I felt and transparent and the wind just seemed to blow through me and I couldn't, I didn't know if I had clothes on and it's just really weird. And he said to me, he says, what you're experiencing now is how you felt just after coming out of the mother's womb. When there was no substantial sense of yourself, not physical or mental or anything else. Where you're just a transparent being. without any identification. It was unsettling, but it was pretty exquisite also. When we can see the conditional nature of this identity that we hold on to so tightly, we can settle back into just the ever-present and continuing appearances of the mind. Letting go of any, having to be anything, anyone, or any particular way, without identification, with this openness, with a confidence to meet and be with any condition, with what's called beginner's mind, where every moment is as if you were a newborn babe experiencing things for the first time. Being fully present and grounded in this moment. 
This moment-to-moment awareness reveals the freedom, the openness, the spaciousness that we are. The Buddha said, or maybe it wasn't the Buddha, I'm not sure who said, sorry, see all of this world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. As we continue our practice, we will open layer by layer to these truths of impermanence, the transitoriness of all of life, to the dukkha or the unsatisfactoriness or the vulnerability of life, and to anatta, the opening to the essencelessness of experience. And in that we access progressive deepening of a sense of freedom and spaciousness in our hearts and in our minds. When Jack is asked, Jack Cornfield is asked by yogis, they want to know if their practice is getting better, if their practice is getting deeper. He says there's one sure way to know if your practice is improving or deepening. Just ask yourself, is there more anicca, anatta, and dukkha? And if there is, you can be sure your practice is improving. These truths are the life of our insight, the result of our insight. They are deepening insight. And they can be and will be our opening, deep and profound opening into the unconditioned, where we can access peace. And the Buddha said, there's no higher happiness than peace. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya damino Upakitua niruchanti desam vipasamo sukho. All conditioned things arise and pass away. Seeing this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.